Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hi, Jim. Hi, Kevin. So, I got tested this morning. Ooh. Why, are you feeling sick? No. Um... High-risk contact? No, but I... Well, no, but I want to visit some friends. And I wanted to know if I have it. Right. And I also got an antibody test, but um, they told me I won't get my results back for seven to ten days. Oh. For the antibody test or for both? Both. Yes. Okay, I'm so glad you mentioned this because I'm hearing this from a lot of people. That is just... That makes a test almost non-functional. I know. It's it, a, it, I it, talked to the doctor who did it. I was like, why are we even bothering? Right. And he was like, exactly. It's useful for academic research purposes as we're studying. Right. You know, but that degree of lag is, that's a major scandal. And it's happening everywhere across the country. And I think a lot of people are bragging about how many tests we're doing when, in fact, yeah. it's sort of like, it's better than no test at all, but barely. There are signs all over the clinic that say minimum seven days. I tweeted about this because uh, David Gura had taken seven days to get his result, and I'd heard that from a lot of other people, and a lot of people replied with the same experience. And essentially, if you're doing it because you had a high-risk exposure, because you think you're sick, then you just have to isolate for that full week, which is basically the amount of time you'd have to do it anyway. Um, right. And Well, so, I wanted to go see my friends on Friday. Right. And, and now I'm like, well... If it's negative, I, do you... You know, I guess maybe if you've not left your house in the last week, you could assume then. But the test also is not perfectly sensitive. We know that, you know. Right. It it could be a false negative. It doesn't. Anyway, I'll be curious to see if you have antibodies. I'm hearing. I will be also very curious too. People who had like basically no reason to think they ever had it, and they do have antibodies. Really, I mean, honestly, that's my hope. One of the reasons I kind of didn't want to get the antibody test is because I don't want to let go of the idea that I'm somehow magically immune. Like if it comes back and I don't have it, then that just adds a sort of negative certainty to my life. That's Um, a good point to make though. Like just to be clear to everyone, we still don't know what to do with a positive antibody test. It doesn't mean you should change your behaviors at all. It, It gives me hope that people are going to be at least at a much lower likelihood of Getting sick and of being able to carry the virus, but we don't know that. And I do worry that some people are getting that antibody test and thinking they can change yeah. their behavior. So really, right. that is just like purely for curiosity's sake and research right now. Right. But I still, you know, if I had to choose, you know, between you having antibodies and not having antibodies, Catherine, I'd hope you do. Me too. Thanks, Jim. Well, in seven to ten days... I would like you to help me decode whatever <laughs> results I get. That and is what so, to do about so them. sad and ridiculous. Yeah. Sort of speaking of that, we've gotten a lot of questions and feedback about our conversation on Friday about herd immunity. Yes. Um, do you want to clarify anything? Your you congrats. Your your piece is up. Um, yeah, there's a long, a big written piece. <laughs> a long story too. that is more. Um, if anyone's wondering wants to read more about herd immunity and the ideas that are were in the episode on Friday, 
That is up now. It's called A New Understanding of Herd Immunity. We'll link to it in this episode description. Yeah, we're just kind of exploring the best that we know right now about these concepts. And one of the things we didn't talk about on Friday, but we have in the past, is that we don't know how long antibodies last, and we don't know how reliably they protect people from reinfection. And the working assumption in a lot of models is that this virus is going to be similar to other respiratory viruses, and it's going to pretty reliably produce immunity for some meaningful period of time. Mm -hmm. And so those models could be shattered if it turns out that the most anyone is ever immune is six months and it doesn't happen reliably. We don't have reason to think that's the case, but that's the best we can do is build models assuming right now that this virus acts like others. And um, that's sort of consistent with what people are seeing in places like New York that have a lot of antibodies in the population. We're not seeing these big spikes, partly probably because of antibodies, but also largely because of all the other measures that we're taking. Right. So herd immunity is sort of a what we call it when the disease stops spreading. Mm-hmm. And that can happen through a bunch of people ha- having antibodies. That can happen through people just not getting together. Many things. But you can create functional herd immunity. It, functional herd immunity can be a combination of all of these things. Yeah. And we're at it right now in, in New York. So each case is infecting fewer than one other person, which means it shrunk to the point of being very low. And we just need to keep it that way. Right. And we need to be real creative in how we do that. Right. But as you've seen in New York, like, life is not dead. People are out. Things are open. Yeah. I mean, it's not normal. It's not pre-pandemic life. But... I wouldn't say it's... Yeah, but no, it's, it's... Oh, my God, it's so much better than it was. It's... it's You can... Yeah. It's workable. It's workable. Yeah. So this should be a a moment of optimism and hope, I hope. Yeah. As wonderful as that news is, that is just New York. And the rest of the country, uh, specifically the South and Southwest, are experiencing really big outbreaks. And I just read that deaths are starting to rise again. Yeah. We, We had this period where deaths were sort of like steady. They're starting to tick back up. Nationally, right? Right. Like, debts are starting to tick up again. And to the extent that we have learned something from what the deaths we have already had, one thing we know is that enclosed spaces (laughs) where people can't leave have been one of the worst hit places. And nursing homes specifically have been just a tragic level of vulnerable. I I read that 40% of deaths have been uh, of coronavirus deaths in the U.S. have been linked to nursing homes. So staff, people in nursing homes, apparently 40% of deaths. That That is amazing. I mean, it comes back to ideas about the protests and about herd immunity, you know, the sort of heterogeneity of interactions and the, the length of interactions and the context of interactions that even not only do you have high-risk people, but you have... Um, real homogenous situations where people are having prolonged contact in indoor spaces. And that seems like like the herd immunity threshold there by definition is going to be much higher than it would be in uh, other contexts. Right, right. Which is why we can't have a single number of infections before you feel safe. Entirely in, in a context like that. And, right. and why even it's hard the, to extrapolate for yeah. like a, even a whole city. 
much less a whole right. You can extrapolate like, oh, twenty five percent of uh, people in New York have antibodies, and the we just hit zero deaths. Like, therefore, if twenty five percent of people in a nursing home have had it, it shouldn't spread anymore. Like, that is not the kind of extrapolation you can make. Exactly, or. Um, that even if we got to 50% as a city and we really were confident that there was going to not be any more major outbreaks as a, at, at a citywide level, you could still have it tear through a nursing home and kill 100 people. And um, it would be a devastating tragedy, you know, and at a national level, it would not show up as like a big spike, but we can't, obviously, that would be something we really want to prevent and need to. Right. So it does strike me that we know so much more than we did in March, right? So as we're facing these new outbreaks, we we have a lot more information. But one of the things I am not sure of is as these outbreaks happen in other places, are we going to see the same kinds of concentrations of deaths, the same kinds of vulnerabilities? You know, do we anticipate that 40% of the deaths we may see going forward will be in nursing homes? Or is there some way to actually avoid that? Like, is that inevitable? Or or do we have some control over that? Nothing is inevitable. Yeah. So we're going to talk to Olga Hazan. She's a staff writer who we've talked to before, not in a while. Um, she just wrote a piece last week on nursing homes. So I was thinking we could talk to her. Like, can can something be done to avoid the same kind of tragedy, like concentrated tragedy that we had in nursing homes in the last few months? Yeah, that would be great. I hope she has an answer. Hello? Hey. Hey, Olga. Hi. How's it going? Good. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited. To, for, for what? Oh, I Chatting? don't know this this podcast. I guess I don't. Yeah, <laughs> good. I feel I'm like I'm excited is something people say, but yeah. <laughs> Have you? I, <laughs> no, I get excited. It's Catherine who is not excited. <laughs> Wait, Olga, Olga and I, I think, have more in common than Olga and you, Jim, in terms of our emotional disposition. Am I, uh, am I going out on a limb here, Olga? No, I think you're right. Probably. Um, so when when Olga says I'm excited, I'm naturally suspicious because <laughs> I'm like, what's wrong? What's wrong? <laughs> That's the correct reaction. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Olga. No, really, though, what's wrong? Uh, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, everything's fine. Okay. <laughs> that was not right. a, a distress cry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, Olga, you've been reporting and talking to people in uh, who are working in nursing homes and living in nursing homes. What are you hearing? So, basically, um, what's happening is coronavirus is getting into nursing homes, and then it's it's like basically the second you have one infection, um, especially mm-hmm. early on, it was basically spreading like wildfire and it inevitably leading to deaths because as we know now, older people are more susceptible to dying from the coronavirus. Right. I feel like a lot of the the people who've been talking about reopening have said, well, let's reopen the economy and then let's just protect the vulnerable is, is usually how it's phrased, which often means nursing homes. But they have completely not been protected, like by no definition of, of being protected. Um, 
when you have 40% of all deaths in nursing homes, that shows you that something is going terribly, terribly wrong. The vulnerable are not, in fact, being protected. Yeah, exactly. Some other conversation we should talk about, like coronavirus euphemisms and all of the like weird bureaucratic language that's being used to cover up horror. But right. anyway, that's a conversation for another day. Um, so have you been talking to people in nursing homes, people who work in nursing homes? What are you hearing about what nursing homes look like right now? Yeah, so I, I wanted to kind of get to the bottom of why this happened. Um, so I talked to a lot of people who study nursing homes, um, who kind of figure out like how nursing homes operate, what nursing homes would do in a situation like a pandemic. And I also talked to a couple of people that actually work in nursing homes. Um, so I just start calling around to all these people who know how, in theory, would we protect nursing homes and why aren't we doing it? So was this inevitable that nursing homes would be hit really, really hard? Um, actually, no. So I talked to a few examples of, of nursing homes in other countries and actually one one in the U.S. that had no nursing home deaths. Um, so in Hong Kong, there were no nursing home deaths or cases, um, basically because they were freaked out by SARS. They had a, a really bad SARS outbreak in Hong Kong in uh, 2003. Really, that caused them to come up with this new plan for nursing homes in case of, a, of an outbreak like this, where they stocked up on masks kind of ahead of time. They isolated nursing home residents in uh, like special hospital wards instead of in the nursing homes. They um, had like these government trained infectious control officers stationed inside the nursing homes. So they really took it seriously and it worked like starting in January of this year, they set this plan in motion and it prevented nursing home deaths. And, you know, I think hearing the Hong Kong example, people might think, well, you have to have a different government in order to do that. But there was an example in Baltimore, actually, this place called the Maryland Baptist Aged Home that uh, did something similar and um, uh, started you know, got the plan in motion when there were just 15 cases in the U.S. and also prevented uh, any coronavirus deaths. Wow. Wait, how did they do that? Yeah. So um, they basically stopped family visits in uh, early February, which is pretty early. Um, yeah. And they they stopped having the residents do community meals. And they they kind of stopped having like a lot of foot traffic into the nursing home. Like so vendors and delivery drivers and people like that had to not come in. They brought in extra cleaning. Um, they started screening their staff really uh, intensively for like um, their temperature and their symptoms and like mm -hmm. what they've been doing outside of work. And it seems like like the resources that you would need to do that grow exponentially as the outbreak is bigger and bigger in a community. Like it might be possible if you've got it, the virus relatively contained in a certain city to keep your nursing homes safe. And then, but if there's this huge outbreak all around, it's going to be really hard to keep people in the nursing homes safe. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what what these experts I talked to told me is that um, essentially, if you have a big outbreak outside the nursing home, there's a really high chance you're going to have a, an outbreak inside the nursing home. You have, you know, the workers who leave work um, and go to the grocery store, they brush up against someone who has it, they bring it back into the into the home. So yeah. um, when you don't have masks, when you don't have um, tests, um, you know, a lot of these experts believe that asymptomatic staffers essentially 
brought the virus into nursing homes and were never tested. And it kind of spread silently for a while uh, earlier this spring. Right. CMS, which is the agency that regulates nursing homes, could have stepped in and given them masks, for example. Um, Guidance from CMS, even on when to use masks, came really late in the game. Hospitals were prioritized and they got kind of priority for the stockpile of masks, Um, but nursing homes weren't. And so um, they were sort of competing against large hospitals and states trying to get extra PPE supplies, um, you know, paying like tons of money for masks that were not uh, actually effective or that were um, in some cases defective in, in various ways. In early June, there was actually data that showed that 250 nursing homes had no masks left and 800 more were a week away from running out. So they sort of weren't provisioned by CMS, the agency that's supposed to ensure the safety of nursing homes with the stuff they needed to keep their residents safe. The federal government kind of left it up to individual nursing homes to protect their residents. And what these nursing homes are saying is, we don't have the money to do that. We don't have, like, we're not trained to do this, and we don't have a stockpile of masks, and we don't have access to tests. And um, that's kind of where it all broke down. We have this body of sort of experience right now that we can learn from as we're seeing these new outbreaks. Can what could nursing homes do specifically right now, or people who you know say you're you have a relative in a nursing home? Um, like, is there something that you can request or demand right now that will help protect them? Yeah, I, I know this is like a really frustrating answer, but I don't think there's anything individual family members or residents can mm-hmm. do. Like, I, I I mean, the message that I kind of heard repeatedly is that the buck kind of stops at CMS. So something Andy Slavitt, who's the former acting administrator of CMS under President Obama, said, like, CMS is in charge of nursing home safety. If they don't have enough resources, they should go to Congress and demand those resources. And that's something that the kind of head of the nursing home organization said, too, is that, like, there's just not enough money in a pot going to nursing homes to get them PPE, to get them tests, to maybe pay the staff more so that they don't have to work multiple jobs and increase the number of contacts they have even further. Mm -hmm. This is like a a problem, like so many other problems in health that can be solved with money and organization and kind of like not every nursing home for itself kind of thinking. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, that still seems to be the kind of thinking that we have. And nursing homes are still scrambling to kind of do the best they can with what they have. And people are still making this argument, right, as we reopen, like, let's protect the vulnerable and have everyone else go back to normal life. And from what we've seen so far, that just seems, not to say that anything is inevitable or people should not be protected, but that seems almost impossible. Well, I mean, I also just don't agree with the argument that everyone should go back to normal and you can still protect the vulnerable because if everyone's back to normal, then the community spread is still really high. And that means that the chances of the nursing home employees bringing in the virus is still pretty high. Yeah. So right, it's like kind protecting of a, the vulnerable means protecting everyone because of the highly transmissible nature of this virus. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, everyone in a sense is, is vulnerable. I mean, whatever you can, right. you can like, whatever we can talk about kids or whatever, have a lower yeah. potentially risk, but it's, you know, you, you know, it's, it, this isn't a virus that's like, oh, you're, you know, you're not vulnerable. So this is okay. Um, it, It's, right. <laughs> you know, 
um, if you if you have it running unchecked through a community, there's there's just a higher probability that a that a nursing home employee will catch it. It's like especially impossible when you talk about nursing homes because this is a very like what they call high touch type of job, right? Like you're you're changing people, you're feeding people, like you're washing people. You're not. This is not like someone like ringing up your soy milk, even though grocery store employees are are also at risk. Like this is someone like physically like handling another person, which really, you know, if that person has coronavirus, that's extremely dangerous. So, you know, we don't really think about what happens to nursing home employees, like once they leave work. So that's where community transmission becomes such an important factor. Yeah. We talked a little bit about this idea back in March or April. It was floated by Thomas Friedman and some other people who seem to be taking it pretty seriously, like, let's just go about our business and we'll protect the vulnerable. And at a glance, it is it makes sense. It's only when you start digging into it, no, how would that happen? How are these infections getting into nursing homes? How are the nursing homes that have done well in other countries continuing to do well that you see it's all just one system? That doesn't mean don't take preventive measures and give extra vigilance and caution to nursing homes, but that they straight up cannot be protected in the middle of a hurricane. Yeah, I agree. Like if I can make a confession at the beginning of the pandemic, I too was sort of like, oh yeah, well like nursing homes are going to be a problem, but like everyone else should be okay. But like, as like we've seen more and as this has progressed, like I don't think that's really an excusable argument anymore because there's just these nursing homes are not like sealed off from society. They ultimately have interactions with the outside world and the outside world is where the virus is. So they're still at risk, you know, even if from one employee coming in and out. Did you get any sense? I mean, if I were dealing with a family member or myself thinking of going into a nursing home right now, I would probably like the idea of being indefinitely cut off from family changes the value proposition. Are people not going into nursing homes or is are people withdrawing from nursing homes? Are there any trends? I did not hear anything like that necessarily, like people opting in or out of nursing homes. Um, I will give one anecdotal example to your data-based question, um, which is that my partner's mom was in a nursing home the entire pandemic until recently. Um, and uh, she recently was, was taken out and put into a a hospital, um, because she has cancer and the difference in her that I remember from before, I mean, granted she has dementia, so like it's a progressive disease, but the difference in her between when she came in and what she's like now that she hasn't seen uh, her son, my partner in six months is pretty dramatic. She used to make like coherent sentences and she doesn't anymore. So it really, I mean, it, it does, it, it is kind of a deal with the devil because you, you do have a chance. And that's something that they saw in Hong Kong that, that people with dementia can really deteriorate if they have no stimulation, yeah. you know, from the outside world. The, the nursing home in, in Maryland did try to like counteract that by kind of changing up their like food program and like adding more like activities for the residents and things like that. But um, it's, it's really tough. Like, like, you know, it's those family visits are really a lifeline for, for nursing home residents. And it's, it's a hard call to cut them off. Um, But, you know, 
they're just making the bargain that once a one case comes into a nursing home, it's it's all over. Yeah, it's not right. any individual family's decision, really, because yeah. they all the whole place has to decide together. And yeah, basically, huh? You can't protect the vulnerable without protecting everyone. Right. Yeah. Ugh, we're all in this together, aren't we? Keep uh, finding someone. ways to I'm make excited. It. Oh. Uh. Okay. <laughs> um All right. Uh thank you for talking to us, Olga. It's truly a delight. Um this has been delightful, although depressing, but um as is everything. It's a these delight days. to talk to you, but the yes. material we're discussing is uh I feel like I'm banging my head against a the same wall I've been banging my head against for four months now. Yeah. Totally. But and it, there's like a combination of continued pain and numbness. You know what I mean? Yeah. Someday you're going to break through it. <laughs> the wall. Jump through the other <laughs> side and say, oh, yeah. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> thank you, Olga. Thanks so much, Olga. Yeah, thank you, guys. Keep up the good work. Talk to you later. Thanks. Talk to you later. Bye. Yeah, I, I think we cannot just protect the vulnerable with a disease like this, that there would be ways to with a different disease. If everyone who was carrying it had symptoms, you know, mm-hmm. and you could just be like, okay, we're going to rigorously fever check everyone and no one comes in the door who has any symptoms at all, you know, we could do it. Mm-hmm. It's the it's once this is asymptomatic, like the only answer is we just have to stop the spread everywhere. And that's yeah. That's what you've seen around the world, places that have done it well. Is there's no yeah. place where they had a huge number of cases throughout the community and their nursing homes were fine. And yet there are places that have nursing homes that are doing fine because the community is doing fine. Yeah. I it's it's that downstream effect stuff that I just wish more people would understand when they think when they talk about like personal risk tolerance and whether or not you, right, right. you know it's that no you pass that to somebody it's going to get into a nursing home it's going to get around your community and into that nursing home and it's going right. to kill people right so that's what the herd immunity story is all about you can read jim's herd immunity story and olga's nursing home story we'll link to them in the description but you can also read them at theatlantic.com you can get access to all of the Atlantic's journalism by subscribing at theatlantic.com slash support us. You can write us at social distance at theatlantic.com. And um, this episode is produced today by Kevin Townsend. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Kevin listens to us and isn't, isn't as mean as he could be to us. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.